0: to Episode 2 of Motorsport with Leverage. I'm Adam Leverage, the Founder and Managing Director of Leverage Promotions and each month I'll be engaging in topical and sometimes quirky discussions with figures from practically every rung of the motorsport ladder, from karting to Formula One. I'm here to take you right into the heart of the action, behind the scenes in pit lanes around the world at some of the highest profile motorsport events. In this episode, we speak with Williams Racing Formula One Reserve driver Jack Aitken about his climb up the junior single-seater ladder and his transition to sports cars, and we look ahead to his 24 Hours of Le Mans debut with Algarve Pro Racing. Jack, a very warm welcome to Motorsport with Leverage. Thank you. Now, you're well known for your Formula One and Formula Two exploits, but let's go right back to the beginning. What sparked your passion for motorsport?
1: Well, oh, um, we always liked motorsport as a family or like cars, probably more specifically. Um, Sunday was always watching the, the Grand Prix and then usually watching Top Gear later on. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, you know, neither of my parents were, were into motorsport or had any links to racing, really. But I went to go-karting for some birthday party when I was seven, I think, was... and really liked it. Just kept asking to go back to try it again. Uh, started entering some proper races. My brother eventually started racing as well. He's a couple of years younger than me. So it became a bit of a family thing to do on the weekend um, that we all really enjoyed and Uh, It was a sport that I was actually relatively well suited for because I was a really small and scrawny kid. And that's (laughs) not usually, they're not usually attributes that um, fit well with sports. So, uh, yeah, that's how it started, really.
0: In that case, when was it that you actually decided you wanted to be a racing driver? When did you start believing that you could actually reach the top flights?
1: I think like like every kid around that age, I was, um, I wanted to do, something like that i wanted to be a racing driver because it sounded really cool and it was a a much more fun prospect than than doing a normal job i don't think i took it really seriously though until i was teenager because at that stage we were doing international competitions around europe competing in bigger teams for you know bigger prizes that sort of led me to think that um well actually that maybe could be a real career path and um It just grew from there, really. So it it wasn't something that started straight away from the age of seven. But then I don't think most kids, um, they don't really know what they want at that age.
0: Yeah, that's a fair point. So when was your route to Formula One first mapped out?
1: It was kind of um, a gradual thing again. So when I was getting towards later years of the karting career, I was starting to look to what car series would make sense to move into. We never really had it fully mapped out because things change so often in, in most sport. So, you know, we were always looking really a couple of years ahead to, to see where best move would be. Uh, and even that is difficult to manage, so it was just a case of moving our way up the ladder step by step.
0: 2015 was a pretty big year for you. Uh, in fact, here are the stats. You clinched the Formula Renault 2 Liter Euro Cup Series with eight podiums, five of which were race victories. You won the Formula Renault Alps Championship with another four wins. And then you capped off the season by winning the Pro Mazda Winterfest crown in the USA. That's a hat-trick of junior championship titles and the reward was a spot in the Renault Sport Academy. Do you feel that was a breakthrough season for you?
1: Yeah, I think it was because it coincided with me finishing um, at school. I I stayed at school until I was 18 and um, got my A-levels and all of that stuff. It meant that when I left, I had time to finally do a proper testing program in the winter of 2014-2015 uh, and that makes a huge difference in motorsport. Um, so it meant I came into the season actually prepared, we did the Winter Fest as a kind of a, a warm-up for the year which went well in itself and then yeah I was just able to, to hit my stride and felt really confident that year. It was you know the second year I was competing in the Euro Cup and I knew the tracks, I knew the car, I knew that I was with a, a good team and just um, started getting better and better results and um, once you get that kind of confidence to to win it becomes much easier to then go out and and win again
0: do you feel that selection for a young driver program like the Renault Sport Academy is key for those pursuing a career in Formula One?
1: I'm not sure these academy programs have become a lot more uh, common uh, than they used to be it used to be you know only a handful of teams that were Really pushing that, and now it seems like they're they're growing. But I think if you're getting the results that would justify you to get a place on one of those, you probably have options anyway. The downside of the the academy is that obviously you're you're tying yourself to to one team. You know, my my experience was generally pretty positive. I spent four years with with Renault, their academy, and I I learned a lot. I know that there's a lot of academies out there that it's just a A title and a badge and uh, you wear the suit and that's kind of it but at Renault, we we did a lot there was a lot of um training behind the scenes both to get you up to speed physically because at that time i was doing my own training i i sort of knew what i was doing but nothing in depth and they taught me all of the um the key things about how to take care of myself and to be more professional about it basically and it also gives you a look into a formula one team and you can really as deep into that as you as you wanted so i was attending all of the briefings even if i wasn't at a grand prix i would be able to go in on the weekend and sit in the ops room and listen on radio to all the communications it's a really cool opportunity at the same time after four years i felt like i'd kind of tapped out the things that i could gain from the program and that was why i sort of decided to switch later on
0: i imagine it added pressure too especially as you started competing in the gp3 series under the direct gaze of Formula 1 teams at the very same time?
1: Sometimes. It still still comes down to results, you know. You still have to go out there and win to try and get your seat in Formula 1. Being on the programme doesn't really give you much of a um, benefit in that sense. So, you know, I felt pressure every year, every race, um, in that sense, to do well. Very occasionally, there were, you know, more specific goals that were set out for you by the Academy. Other than just go out and, and do as well as possible, and then you know you you could certainly have things put in front of you and said, "Well, if you do this job this year, then next year this is what will be your reward. This is what you'll get given the the series that you'll move up to, etc." But it's um, yeah, it's just about dealing with that in a, in a very calm way and focusing on the uh, the job at hand and not not the what ifs and maybes.
0: In 2017, you were in the thick of the GP3 title fight with George Russell. You ended the season as vice champion after a fantastic battle. How do you reflect on that?
1: It was a tough year, yeah. Um, I mean, the result on paper is is pretty good, I think, by by most people's standards. But, yeah, I found it a very, very tough year. It was my second year in GP3 because I'd come from Arden in my rookie year, where, by all accounts, we'd done a really good job. We ended the year as one of the highest point scorers, and with, you know, quite a, a good run of podiums um, through the last few few rounds, and things were looking good. I moved to ART uh, because they were the powerhouse, and, and to an extent, they still are, and it made a lot of sense. And as a team, we completely dominated that year with four cars. I think we did finish one, two, three, four, or maybe one, two, three, five in the championship. I can't remember. But yeah, it just became a complete internal battle for the championship, which was slightly weird, but, um, but made it quite, quite interesting in a lot of ways. And George was had come from FIA Formula 3, where he'd been racing at a high level for a few years and had the Mercedes backing. And it was, it was quite intense. Um, I, I struggled with gelling with the car, 100%. was a little bit different to the Arden car that I'd got on with so well and I think a bit of my inexperience came through that I wasn't able to to really tell the team exactly what I wanted. So it, it became harder to um, to pull results out as the year went on and uh, just felt like I was slipping a little bit further and further back from George and in the end he obviously did take the title. So it was frustrating in a lot of ways but I also learned a hell of a lot because it taught me a lot about the importance of Making sure that you get what you need from the team and gel with uh, your engineer and that the communication is absolutely top tier because it's one of the most important things that that you can
0: do for the result. Of course, that year you sampled F1 machinery for the very first time. What is that experience like for young aspiring F1 drivers?
1: Yeah, it was amazing. When I I got told that I was going to get that test, I think at mid-summer break, um, so after Budapest because there was a certain criteria I had to hit, I can't remember exactly, but um, I hit the criteria in Budapest, and um, they told me, "Yeah, so you're gonna go and do that test in It was in the 2012 Lotus as it was, but renamed Renault. The first uh, laps that I took were, were very special, as it will be for any, any guy or girl who's aspired to be an F1 for that long. Just the noise of the machine as well, because it was one of the old V8s was, was really, really cool as well. We yeah we did a, a little program through the day, getting me up to speed, slowly letting me, me try more of the performance of the car, and eventually you know just uh, letting loose a bit and setting some some really good lap times and uh, getting comfortable with it, and just you know getting to learn it as any other single seater car really. But mm. there is something special about F1. You know every car is unique in the sense that they they build it as a prototype, whereas F2 and F3 cars are built relatively on a mass-produced scale. That means that, you know, it's hard to say corners are cut, but nothing is really built um, to the same level of um, having an eye on performance. And you feel that when you sit in an F1 car, that everything that you do is is met with a level of precision and perfection and uh, just makes it a really special place to sit.
0: I don't doubt that at all and you must have impressed because you were eventually appointed official test driver for the Renault Sport Formula One team in 2019. Testing is so limited in F1 nowadays, so what does that role entail? And in what ways were you able to showcase your abilities in a bid to secure an F1 race seat? After all, that's what these programmes are all about.
1: Yeah, it is a problem with Formula One these days. I think they're making steps to combatter with um, having the young driver fp1s and things like that at the time in 2018 opportunities were very limited i think i did that year uh, my first test in contemporary f1 machinery uh, with the rookie test in barcelona i did that and then later in the year i believe that i also did a pirelli test at suzuka which was probably the best day that i've spent in a racing car ever just amazing. New tyres going on every every run and just pounding around for a whole day um, with the whole track to myself.
0: Pretty epic circuit as uh, well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Not bad. Yeah. As a test driver, it meant that I was travelling uh, a bit more often with the team and I just tried to integrate myself a little bit more. I, I got to know the engineers and the race team, uh, the mechanics, the drivers even, and uh, just trying to absorb information. I and mean, just taking that a little bit further than when I was only in the academy. Uh, but other than that, yeah, there, there really aren't many opportunities to make yourself a proper test driver.
0: In that case, do you feel the motorsport industry needs to provide young drivers with more support and opportunity?
1: I think that um, it was definitely better in previous eras for, for young drivers, mainly because of the testing. The limits that we have on testing now mean that it's it's very difficult to get track time. And even the track time that is available, a good portion of it gets snapped up by people who bring backing and who are willing to pay for that time. That's probably the the main problem. Everything else, I think, you know, there's a lot of support in terms of academies that are available now. Funding uh, through those academies seems to be as good as ever. But, yeah, it would be great if F1 could find some way of introducing um, a similar level of testing to what it was, you know, a decade ago or, or even more like two decades ago i guess because race drivers simply don't have the time energy will to to do that much testing and it opens the door for young drivers to do the development
0: Mm -hmm. of course you now hold a reserve driver role with williams racing and that led to your f1 race debut in the 2020 sake grand prix what is it like to be called up to the plate at the last minute were you prepared or was it a shock to the system
1: I mean, both. Yeah, I I was prepared in the sense that it it was still my job, and I I didn't want to be in a situation where I was presented with the biggest opportunity of my career, and I wouldn't be ready for it. So, physically and, and also mentally, in terms of knowing the car, the procedures, the team, how they operate, all of that stuff I knew, and I'd done a lot of days in the simulator that year, but still on, you know, Tuesday evening when I'm getting ready to do Formula 2 at the Sakhir Grand Prix and focusing on that and you get the call to say there's a chance that you might be in the F1 car this weekend, I guess confirmed Wednesday. It was still hectic getting in to try and make sure that I was as up to speed as possible because you can do as much prep as you like but if you're, if you've only ever driven in test sessions, which was the case for me up to that point, it's still going to be very different to a race weekend um, luckily for me one of the good things about the difference is that there's a lot of track time uh, in a formula one weekend you know in f2 we get 45 minutes of practice before quality in f1 you get i think at the time it was like three and a half hours of practice i, I can't remember exactly but it's a lot um, you know all through friday mm. fp1 fp2 fp3 and that gave me time to build up to the car and get used to it slowly, and I felt really comfortable. And it it helped that it was a slightly new circuit for everybody, so that level playing peeled out a little bit. But yeah, the weekend was hectic, and it it really took until the Monday afterwards when everybody had sort of stopped and calmed down a bit, myself included, to really um, digest what what had happened. And yeah, obviously it was a very special
0: uh, time for me. And once you had digested everything, were you satisfied?
1: Yeah, I, I was. Um, because I think looking at the way that I handled myself over the weekend, the performances that I put in against Nicky, um, who was my teammate that weekend, I was happy that I did pretty much the best job that I could have done for myself that weekend, showing what I could do, jumping in. Mm-hmm. And um, at, you know, on Sunday after the race, I was gutted because of the, um, the mistake that I'd made spinning in the race and definitely took away a bit from the the overall result but when I look back I said look you know I was pushing I made one mistake it was it was just had a bad time yeah. in the weekend to make a mistake but the rest of the race the qualifying everything that you did with the team mm-hmm. I, I was I was happy with what I did yeah would love to have had another shot in Abu Dhabi the weekend after um but that's um, yeah I uh, Fortunately, for Lewis, he, he got better, obviously.
0: Of course, yeah, this is it. Um, but of course, you've since diverted some of your attention to endurance sports car racing. What prompted that move?
1: Well, it was just looking at my what I needed as a driver. I'd done Formula 2 for three years, and I felt like I, I didn't have the budget to be with a top team to challenge for a title, which is, you know, it's, it's a common problem. You know, we had opportunities to go with teams for much, much cheaper deals, but it just felt like we would have been, you know, rolling around, going through the motions, and I wouldn't be learning anything more because I'd taken a lot from what I could from F2. And I I could instead, with far less budget, go to a whole new world of racing, a whole new discipline, learn something new challenge myself against a field of drivers that is probably one of the most competitive in the world uh, in gt3 racing and just yeah keep keep, uh, pushing myself even if it's a different direction so that's what we decided to do williams were really supportive with that at the time and they felt that it did actually make a lot of sense and yeah that's how it came about
0: with the advent of hypercar lmdh and the strength of LMP2, LMP3, GT3, GT4. Do you see plenty of opportunities to make a long-lasting career in sports car racing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, as has been the case uh, for for a while, GT racing offers um, far more paid seats per entry than than most other categories. You know, we've got a, a really healthy field of uh, GT racing at the moment with all the manufacturers and. The number of drivers that they're employing. You know, that's even extending up, you know, with the the introduction of the uh, LMDH categories uh, coming on this year and in the next years with more manufacturers entering. There's been a massive push by um, manufacturers and drivers alike to get people ready by doing LMP2. So even LMP2, that, you know, traditionally you wouldn't be able to get a paid seat anywhere really unless you were. Uh, being paid directly by a gentleman driver now that's entering its own little heyday as well which will you know eventually that will stop uh, when the hypercar, car the lmdh cars are fully up to speed and everyone has um, taken what they can from lmp2 but it's still great to see we've got a really healthy grid this year at le mans and in uh, ems where i'm racing and it's super competitive which is always a great sign
0: There was quite a dramatic twist to your 2021 season, wasn't there? You broke quite a few bones in a heavy crash in the spa 24 hours. How was your recovery and what have you had to do to get back to full fitness?
1: I guess as a starting point, the injuries that I had to deal with were I had a broken collarbone. It was quite badly broken, so that required a a plate to be put in. And actually that would turn out to be quite a simple recovery as most people who have broken a collarbone and and done that surgery would tell you, you know, when you get the plate put in, you let it settle for a a week or two and then you can start pretty much doing what you want with that arm again. It's just a case of building up strength. The more complicated recovery was my back because I had a quite severe compression fracture in one of my vertebrae, quite low down in L2. Um, And that came because just because of the speed and of the impact, my, my body effectively was held forwards and the angle at which my upper body was pushed forwards meant that I, I basically pressed one of my vertebrae into a triangle instead of it being square. Nice. I've actually had that, that injury before um, in 2015 in a race in Formula Renault Alps and Monza. That was far less severe and I was able to be back in the car in four weeks. kind of set up some false expectations for me because when they they told me what my injury was I thought oh I've had that before and that's you know I can I can manage that and I'll be back um, after the summer break but like I said this was quite quite severe yeah there was it was a bigger compression and it was lower down in my spine which is it has more consequences for movement so I spent a week and a half in Belgian hospital because I couldn't really move. I had to wait for it to stabilize. I was walking around in a brace then for two months just to minimize any further damage and not take any risks. And that meant I was walking around like a, like a stick, basically. <laughs> couldn't move sideways, rotate, bend forwards, up, down. And actually it was my girlfriend who um, came to pick me up from Brussels and supported me with a lot of that and my family as well. I was staying at home with my parents. Because um, I couldn't do a lot of stuff. Um, I couldn't drive a car, partly because my, my collarbone injury was my gear changing hand and we all own manual cars. <laughs> yeah, I just lost a lot lot of independence. The, the, the training side of it was very frustrating as well um, because I had to take things very, very slowly. And it was a case of almost avoiding doing any further damage rather than actually building up my own strength again. Got back in the car, Two and a half months afterwards, I think it was ten weeks or something like that, uh, for a GT World Challenge race in Barcelona, and I was uh, yeah, it was, it was a very difficult weekend, mainly because as a consequence of, of the, the back injury, I have to have a really good posture now all the time. Otherwise, I start to get back pain, and sitting on a you know an easy jet, easy jet flight for a couple of hours there and back, sitting in the car to get to the circuit waiting around um, in the garage doing the briefings and so on, I was getting massive uh, lower back pain just from being around. Driving the car was actually one of the easiest things that I could do. Oh, wow. Because um, you're, you're fully strapped in and everything is is locked in place, so your back is kind of really well supported. One of the things that I've learned about injury, because I've had a few of them now, this has been the most severe, is that it kind of doesn't end, you know, there isn't an end point uh, where you're fully healed. I still, to this day, have to manage injuries that I've had six, seven years ago, and my back is still causing me problems from that crash and spark. My physio basically explained it to me the other day, saying, "What you've done is basically accelerated the wear and tear on that vertebrae by about sixty or seventy years." Um, so matters. the back pain that people, yeah, the back pain that people have in their older years is because over the decades of supporting your body and standing up gravity will compress your spine and that's where lower back pain comes from or one of the reasons you can have lower back pain and i have to manage that by stretching every day by having a really good posture wherever i go i can't afford to slouch um, on a flight for a couple of hours and i can't afford to overtrain train and um, do stupid things with weights because again back of cause problem with slipping discs and all sorts so it just means that I have to take care of myself a lot more than I used to. But if I manage all of those things, I can train as I used to, um, I can drive the car without any issues, and I'm getting back to a place where I'm as fit as I was um, before Spa. Even though it's an ongoing thing, it's it's kind of all working out fine. and I, I feel very lucky that there is nothing really super permanent um, from that accident, because it, it was a big
0: one. It's great to hear you've recovered so well. And now you're in the midst of a super busy 2022 that encompasses the European Le Mans series, GT World Challenge Europe, ADAC GT Masters, and now the 24 Hours of Le Mans with Algarve Pro Racing. How have you found the transition from Formula 2 single-seaters to LMP2? Yeah, fairly
1: fairly easy. Um, I think the GT car is a much more complicated transition. P2 after the first couple of days that I did running in that car, where it's sort of, you know, it's still a new car to, to, to learn its, uh, its character. By the time we got to the first races at Boracard, I was enjoying it a lot. With the, the way that they've restricted the LMP2 cars over the years to make them a little bit slower, it's very underpowered and over-gripped, mm-hmm. so it's a bit like the old FIA F3 car, which I loved. I thought it was a great car. This is a lot of fun as well, because you can really throw it into the corners. It's got a massive amount of grip in the high-speed stuff, and it's pretty easy to chuck around because it doesn't have a huge amount of power that you need to finesse. You find the lap time by being really aggressive and confident with it in the high-speed, which yeah, is a lot of fun.
0: What about the cultures and environments within F1 and top-level sports car racing? Are there any notable differences for drivers? it's a completely different culture yeah
1: paddock um, atmosphere in f1 has a lot of massive positives you know there's a lot of people who have been working there for a very long time in the the same positions or just rotating around different teams it's the same in gt um, you see the same old faces just in different different uniforms but in f1 i think um, especially among the drivers you're less likely to find the relaxed character and during the race weekend, not just between races, I think stress levels are a little bit higher. Tensions can run a bit higher as well. Whereas in the GT stuff, I've found that people are much quicker to just come over between the session and say hi, and have a chat in each other's hospitality or go and get lunch together. And it's it's a, it's a different, different atmosphere. People are still massively competitive. And I'm not saying that they're completely apples and oranges, black and white. There's a lot of people in the F1 paddock that I think get on super easy and it's there's no problems. And likewise, in the G C paddock, there are a lot of people who can be very difficult and who are more uh, on the professional end of the scale, let's say. But it, it is a general trend.
0: Which do you prefer?
1: I like both. Uh, you know, they're just different. Endurance racing, you know, I'm going to hit the, the peak of it. In Le Mans and I cannot wait because it's going to be such a team challenge such a challenge just to get to the finish and then on top of that to do well and to get a result which is the reason why I loved I've watched pretty much the whole of the the Nordschleife 24 hours which I think takes that even to another level because that stuff is just crazy but the single seaters and particularly F1 I do miss the individuality of it like having your own car and everything is is up to you Quali, the race can be run as you like and you're responsible for the results, good or bad. Whereas now it is a team effort, it's collaborative in, in GT. So yeah, I, I still enjoy working with Williams, whether it's in the simulator or or just um, watching on during the weekends uh, for that reason. But the GT world has a lot to offer and LMP2 as well, I'm, I'm really enjoying.
0: Sharing the car must be quite difficult. Does it require a change of mindset or approach?
1: Uh, I didn't. I haven't found it too, too challenging to be honest from, from the first time that I started sharing last year because I've been fortunate enough that the drivers that I've been with, usually we all want the same things and we have similar tastes and it's, um, yeah, definitely there are compromises that you have to make. Usually for me, it's less on the driving and it's more on the, um, how I fit in the car because I have quite short legs. And um, it's always an issue for me to reach the pedals when I'm sharing with other people. <laughs> but um, no, I, I like to think that I can get on with most people, and that's made my life fairly easy so far. My teammates in GT this year, particularly Albert Costa, who I race with in ADAC, he was very quick last year to give me a hand, experienced Lambo driver, and say, you know, "Try this, try that," uh, or even just to offer a friendly ear. And now we're teammates, and uh, I love it. We, you know, we we are very ready to give up, whether it's in a new set of tyres and practice for the other, because they they're struggling a bit more and they need to learn, or for making a compromise on setup. Everything's a very open conversation. So, with people like that, it makes it very easy to share a
0: car. So it's now Le Mans week, and you're joining Sophia Flersh and John Falb Algarve Pro. What do you think of the Akin Flush Falb Algarve Pro combination?
1: think on paper we are one of the strongest in pro um and john and sophia both have previous experience of le mans john quite a lot um which is fantastic uh we've done a test together which went very well at monza just looking at that lower down force spec package and i think yeah we we have a really good chance but i'm a rookie to le mans and you never know what's going to happen um you know we've APR have been great that they've been we've had a couple of briefings and looking back at previous years and what they could have done differently you can see how much luck can play an in influence whether it's with mechanicals or accidents yeah I'm just going to go in with the mindset of uh, it's my first on. I have a lot to learn I'm going to try and uh, do as good a job as I can and if that brings a good result at the end then that would be Fantastic, um, But let's see.
0: Earlier, you touched on the difficulties of going from one GP3 team to another. As in junior single-seaters, LMP2 is made up of identical cars, in this case, Oroch 07s. How is it going from one LMP2 team to another?
1: Pretty fine. Luckily, I think I learned from that, that year in GP3 uh, some lessons about moving teams and how, having to work with different people so nowadays, I don't find it too too bad. I've worked with of teams in the last two years, and um, APR got a great car, I think, for Le Mans. I actually knew the engineer before I came on board for Le Mans as well, and I knew Sophia. So all of that makes it a little bit easier, and um, yeah, I've been really comfortable with them so far. I'm really looking forward to to the week as a whole. I think we, you know, if we do everything right, then we're going to give ourselves a really good chance of being right up there in, in Pro-Am.
0: So has Le Mans always been on your radar? Is it has it always been a box to be ticked?
1: Yeah, um, I think you'd probably struggle to find many racing drivers who don't have that on their list. Even when I was coming up through single seaters and uh, was absolutely focused on Formula One, I always knew that at one stage I would like to do Le Mans. I just envisioned that it might be a little bit later, because that you know the door in endurance is open for longer you see guys racing into their 40s even their 50s being really fast so there wasn't that time pressure that you have with uh, formula one the fact that it's come earlier fantastic you know i it's great for me to get it onto my cv as well because with a lot of 24-hour races i think teams do want to see that you've done it before and that you've handled that situation well they are a different beast to um you know your normal six hour endurance races
0: how do you prepare for a race like le mans it's only in official testing that you can sample circuit de la Sarthe in full also we've spoken about your injury is that a factor
1: um, on the injury side i'm not too worried like i said before in the car is actually one of the places where i have the least issues nowadays it's more making sure in my day-to-day life that I'm taking care of myself. So I'll continue doing that. You know, physically I feel ready. I like to to do my training anyway. So that's luckily not been a big problem for me. But it is going a bit into the unknown, doing a whole 24 hour race. So working with the physios to get a plan for, you know, as soon as you come in from your stint, you're doing X, Y, Z, one, two, three, bang, you get your sleep, your rest. And in the week leading up to it, making sure you're ticking all the boxes physically as well, staying hydrated, not overexerting yourself because you're about to have two days of massive stress. And then on the other side of it, I've been doing a lot of work in the simulator. I know the circuit really well because I did during the first COVID lockdown, I did the virtual 24 hours of Le Mans mm-hmm. and we finished on the podium. You know, the circuit of is has burned into my memory from that experience. <laughs> and from watching it as as a kid on TV. So luckily I do know the circuit pretty well, even if I've never actually been there. It's just going to be a case of not getting too caught up in setup work, but just getting myself bedded in, learning the procedures around the slow zones, safety cars, and the particular rules for, for WEC, getting everything spick and span before you put the car down on Saturday.
0: Okay, so what are your hopes and expectations for the race itself?
1: My hope is is that we can follow through on the pace that I think that we, we will have and, and actually get up onto the podium, maybe even the top step for, for Pro-Am. That is a hope. My expectation is, is more just on my side to go in and do everything that I need to do during the week, the practices, the quali, managing myself around the team and my own health and energy. And when I get to the race, making sure that I'm feeling like I'm in the place that I need to be physically and uh, mentally because you don't know what's going to happen in the race. We could be out on the first lap. Um, I severely hope that's not the case, <laughs> but it could happen and you can't control that. So um, I'm just you know, going to try and work on the stuff that I know I can do. And if we get into the race and we're, we're racing and everything's going well, then that's all the better.
0: Jack Aitkin, thank you very much for joining us on Motorsport with Leverage. All the best for Le Mans. I'm certain the experience will not only live up to your expectations, but exceed them. And I hope you and Algarve Pro achieve great things.
1: No worries. Thank you.
0: And thank you for tuning in. Be sure to like Algarve Pro Racing Team on Facebook and follow at AP Racing Team on Twitter and Instagram for regular updates and behind-the-scenes content before, during, and after the 90th edition of the 24 Hours of Le Mans at Circuit de la Sarthe. The next episode of Motorsport with Leverage will be available on your preferred podcast platform in July. Until then, goodbye.